0: Well, last week we began by looking at the first couple verses of 1 Peter, and today we'll move on to the next three verses 3 through 5. I think the key to these verses is there in verse 3, this phrase, a living hope. I think that's the connective tissue. That's uh, the melody of the song, you could say. But, but is it? We should wonder that. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there. Verses 3, 4, and 5 are just filled with with all kinds of salvation graces or elements of God's forgiving, redeeming work. There's the new birth, there's the resurrection of Jesus, a heavenly inheritance, this thing of being kept by God's power, and then at the end, verse 5, Jesus' return in the last days. All kinds of great things there. So why do I say that really the focus of these verses, the key of these verses is this phrase, a living hope? Well, I tried to think of an illustration this week, how living hope is central to uh, what these verses teach us, and I thought of horseradish. I love horseradish. I love horseradish embarrassingly so. I've ruined more than one date with horseradish. I've made scenes in fancy restaurants by slapping the table hard because I took too much horseradish on that bite, purposed, resolved to not do it again until the next bite when I do it again. I just love it. Well, living hope is something like horseradish on a, a steak sandwich. There are other good things in the sandwich, other important things, like the good juicy meat and spices and good bread or a bun. Maybe there's even some sprouts in there to make your wife happy. Maybe some other sauce in there. But, but when you get to horseradish in a good steak sandwich, it's pow, right? Right? I mean, it just awakens you and blood flows and you slam your hand down if it's really good and you've taken a lot of it. It brings tears to your eyes. It carries along the whole flavor of the sandwich into your nose and into your brain. It's an uppercut of food, isn't it? A good one. Our pastor in Virginia, when Sarah and I were in college and then later in seminary, he used to say when something was really good, it'll make you slap your grandmother. And I don't think he meant across the face. I think he meant on the back. Like, it's so good. You just, bam, you slap grandma on the back. Like, how about that? It's kind of like that. Well, back to First Peter. In this thing of a living hope. The living hope here is kind of like horseradish in that it looks, well, okay. Horseradish on a table in a dish just looks okay. Maybe even... You'd predict that it would be boring until you take a bite. Here, living hope looks a little bland, like it's no biggie, like it's a a freebie. It's a a bonus phrase here in the midst of all this good stuff. But it's it's the point of the passage. It's the point of eating a steak sandwich when there's horseradish on the table. You eat just to eat the horseradish. And here, we need this living hope, just like those in Peter's time needed this living hope hope remember they were persecuted christians they were surprised by their persecution they were thinking it was a strange thing they've been spoken against they've endured sorrows some have been beaten they've been reviled they've been harmed they've been slandered maligned insulted all these words are strewn through first peter And because they're surprised by the suffering, Peter writes to encourage them in the faith. So it says in chapter 5, verse 12, remember that from a couple weeks ago? He tells us why he writes this letter, to declare the true grace of God and to exhort them to stand firm in it. That's the language at the end of the letter about what it's about. At the beginning of the letter We see the language of this living hope. He writes this letter to remind them of the living hope that's in Christ and encourage them to stand firm in it despite whatever suffering and persecution is going on in the midst of it. So, what are you going through right now? Who's mad at you right now? What seems hopeless in life right now? Maybe someone's wronged you. Maybe things feel broken, just twisted, messed up. Maybe it's been a whole year of that. Maybe things for tomorrow feel precarious and dangerous and scary. Is the gospel enough? Is that enough of a remedy? Is that enough of a bolstering comfort for you? Is that enough strength for you? Is that enough hope? Is the gospel your living hope? Peter thought it was. And when he says hope, he doesn't just mean hope like we hope so, or I hope so. That's how we use it today. Hope is like, uh, I think it might turn out a hope so. But hope in the Bible sense is trust. It's belief. It's even expectation. And expectation about what God has promised. It looks forward to what's promised, but yet hasn't come to its fullest reality. So it's forward-looking, it's forward-leaning, and it's not just expectant, but it's full of anticipation and joy, not just knowing what's to come and thinking that's a pretty good thing, but thinking it's a great thing. It changes all about life in the here and now based on how good it will be when more comes to us. In other words, hope, like Peter uses it here, is the opposite of hopelessness. When we say, oh, it's hopeless, we mean it's not worth your trust, it's not worth your affection, it's not going to work. Peter means you can trust this, it's going to work, and you should be excited about it. He calls it a living hope, not just hope, but a living hope. Because they now live, these Christians. They've been born again, verse 3 says. They've been made alive because Jesus lives. That's also in verse 3. He died for sins and was resurrected in victory. That's living hope. They have living hope because they now have an inheritance, it's in heaven. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, verse 4 says. It's kept in heaven for them where no one can get to it and no one can take it and no one can change it. It's a living hope because God guards the faith that he first starts, he protects, he keeps, and he does it with his power, verse 5 says. It's a living hope because it will, in due time, come to a culmination when Jesus is revealed and our salvation is fully revealed to us. Verse 5 says, and then look at verse 6, in this you rejoice, in all of this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Grieving on the outside, grieving in the circumstances around them, greatly rejoicing in the internal realities and what's to come in the new heaven and the new earth in God's plan completed. So after addressing these people he's writing to in verses 1 and 2 and really describing them, right, reminding them of who they are and what they have in Christ, in verse 3, at the beginning, he turns to praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed means good to him. He means praise here. He means God is good and we should speak well of him. The one who's the Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who works according to his great mercy. This is who he is. In fact, God said to Moses, This is his name. In Exodus 34, God revealed his longer name to Moses. He gives us a description of himself there. He says, He's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's part of what Peter has in mind when he says, according to his great mercy. He praises God for that great mercy, and from there he gives us five ways that God shows his mercy. Five aspects of our living hope. The first, the hope of the new birth. In verse 3, we see the hope of the new birth. that says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, being born again in pop culture can mean almost anything. I mean, sometimes people mean when they say that person's born again that they've had some experience. So they're experiential in their religion. Or another guy might think of Someone being born again as someone who's had some kind of significant shift, like they used to be on drugs and now they're not. They've had a bad past, but now they had a coming-to-Jesus moment and they've straightened things out for the future. Sometimes people talk about a born-again Christian like it's an especially serious kind of Christian or an especially happy kind of Christian, as if there are regular Christians, and then born-again Christians. You know, they raise their hands or read their Bibles or give to church or, or believe everything the Bible says. Well, in the Bible, there's no difference between a Christian and a born-again Christian. There are those who profess Christ and aren't really of Christ. All those who are of Christ, all those who are truly Christians, have been born again. It's not a higher plane of Christianity at all. Neither does it mean a fresh start. Or a second chance, like God saying, how about we take two? See how that one goes. Hopefully you won't crash and burn. No, we would crash and burn. I love how John Piper summarizes the new birth. He says, what happens in the new birth is not getting new religion, but getting new life. What happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. What happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature. A nature that is really you, and is forgiven and cleansed, and a nature that is really new, and is being formed by the indwelling Spirit of God. In other words, new birth means that there's new life. If there's new life, that means there had to be an old life. The Bible talks about this, that in Jesus we have died to our old self and we've been raised to a new life. Really, there's a new person in the new birth. The same person, but a different one, a changed one. There's a new nature about this new birth. Really, it's entrance into a new world. Just like birth, your physical birth, was being born into this world. Being born again... Getting the new birth is like being born from above, is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. It means we're now part of a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It's like there's a, a realm transfer that took place when we became Christians. God moved us from one and put us in another. As it says in Colossians 1. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, rescue, freeness, and the forgiveness of sins. There's a realm transfer. But new birth also means that we have a new parentage. In John chapter 8, Jesus told the Pharisees there that they were born of their father, the devil. Can you imagine being religious, thinking you've got God as your father, and Jesus comes along and says, actually, your father is the devil. We're all born that way. We were born sons of disobedience. We were born sons of wrath. In the new birth, we're born from above. We're born from God himself himself. And God is now our Father in a new in different way. In a sense, he's the Father of all creation in that he makes creation. He's the one over it all. He's the one who gives it all. He's the Father of everyone in that sense. But there's something different about the new birth that makes God our eternal, spiritual, and real Father. Which means that there's a new inheritance. We'll get to that in just a minute. Peter connects the new birth with a new inheritance. But we can see more about the new birth from what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Listen to this. They have a discussion about being born again. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a religious leader. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No forgiveness. No being with God, no going to heaven, however you want to put it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? And just in wooden, literal terms, he says, Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What is this thing of second birth or new birth or born again? I know how the first one happened, and you get bigger and older and you can't do it again, right? What do you mean? Jesus tells him, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus didn't get the illustration, in part because he had not yet been born again. He didn't get what this meant. And Jesus says, The new birth is like the Holy Spirit going around and blowing here and blowing there, and you can't predict where it's going to go. You can't predict where it's going to land. But in God's wisdom, He works, He awakens, He gives new birth. It reminds us that we can't affect this, it reminds us of our natural inability. We talked about this last week. No man seeks after God. Foolishness is how we summarize the gospel or a stumbling block when we hear it before he gives us a new heart to receive it. The new birth is not something that we can affect, that we can do in our own strength. We're never told as a command, be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven He must be born again. It must happen to him. Just like in your first birth, your physical birth, you didn't decide to get born. It just kind of happened. God gave life. And that makes for a good illustration for how he awakens our hearts to see him and to seek him. And Peter makes it doubly clear in verse 3. Not only just the phrase born again imply that we can't do it to ourselves, but Peter adds the word caused. God caused us to be born again. Now that should foster some humility. That should foster some dependence upon God. It reminds us of our natural inability, as I said. But having received it, now we're all the more thankful. Right? We were desperate. We weren't just misguided. We were desperate. We needed a new birth from above. And as Christians, we believe He's given that to us. We also know that He hasn't yet given it to so-and-so or so-and-so. And what do we do? We, we pray for them. We pray that God would give them a new heart. We pray that God would give them a new birth. And we also Ourselves, give them God's words. Because that's what God uses in the new birth. He has to do something more than just let words hit their ears. He has to give a new birth in accordance with those words. He uses the words. Look down at verse 23 of 1 Peter 1. He tells us this. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, it's not just enough for us to hear the words of the gospel. God must do something with it. It's not enough to just be born from above and have this spiritual experience, to have a new inheritance and have part, to be part of a, a heavenly realm. We need these words To be the means by which we believe and receive. So a new birth means a change in status. means a change in desires. The new birth means, in part, a change in lifestyle. Dare we say, it means a change in the rules of the game of life. You see this in 1 John. Several times, John here talks about being born of God. And tells us what it looks like when we are born from him. Chapter 2, verse 29 of 1 John, he says, Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In chapter 3, verse 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's where he got it from. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So have you? Have you been born from above? You say, well, no, I don't think so, but how do I do it? You don't. You don't do it. But you believe. And Jesus went on in John chapter 3 to talk to Nicodemus about belief Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And when we believe, lo and behold, we find out that something behind the scenes is going on. The new birth. Theologians call it regeneration. Peter brings this up at the beginning of his letter. New birth. Because he's beginning to explain to these Christians what they're going through and why they're going through it. They're different now. They see things differently. And the world can see that they're different now and that they see things differently. They're part of a new realm. They have new rules and new realities and new allegiances and new beliefs. They're a new community. And some see that and believe. Some see it and they loathe it. That's why there's some persecution Peter's already beginning to explain to them why they're going through persecution. They've been born from above. They're not of this world. But it also gives them great comfort in the midst of the persecution, doesn't it? I mean, you can be cast out of society and be assured that you're born of God. Your citizenship is in heaven, even if you have no Roman citizenship here. They might have nothing in their pockets, but they have an inheritance kept in heaven for them they have a new father even if their human fathers have cast them aside that's the first thing the hope of a new birth but secondly we see the hope of the resurrection rooted in this new birth is jesus's resurrection There's a connection to it. Verse 3 says, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So Peter's telling us that our spiritual resurrection is only possible because of Jesus' physical and real resurrection. And I don't think he means to single out Jesus' resurrection here as the means of our salvation like downplaying the cross or jesus's death no they go together if jesus was raised from the dead he had to die and he's just using one as a a part for the whole like sometimes in scripture we see the cross saved us or we're saved by jesus's blood and it makes no mention right there of jesus's resurrection it doesn't mean to say that he could have died and not been raised and we would still be saved it means the whole Gospel weekend, the Easter weekend of death, burial, and resurrection. And so Jesus' death and resurrection is the means by which we are raised into new life and have this living hope. He had to die. He had to die to be our substitute. He had to die to pay for sins. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago, this gospel nugget that tells us why Jesus had to die and was raised. It says Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. That's the whole gospel weekend in telling us The reason behind the whole gospel weekend that Jesus died as our substitute to give us righteousness that we didn't have, to take the punishment that we didn't want. And that comes to us according to his grace. It comes to us in the preaching of his word. That comes to us through a new birth. Jesus was raised so that he would show himself to be victorious over death. In the death and resurrection, Jesus not only died in our place, but Jesus conquered death for us. In Revelation 1, he says, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, or hell. He's gone through death and hell and now has the keys to break it loose for us why he was raised he was raised so that he would be the first fruits of a whole new world a whole new order of things that's our living hope the way it's put in first peter 1 verse 21 is this it's through him that you are believers in god through him that you believe who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. God saves in such a way that no flesh can glory in itself, and God saves in such a way that we can fix our hope completely on him. Our faith and our hope rest in God. Is yours, have you set your hope in God? In this grace, have you come to believe and trust Jesus as Savior, to know his forgiveness and his reconciliation? That's why he died. That's why he was raised. And he was raised so that we might have hope. The third piece of this hope picture here is a sure and heavenly inheritance. In verse 4, It says we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven. Why is that a good thing that our faith would be, I'm sorry, that our inheritance would be kept in heaven for us? Well, because no one can get it there. We don't lose it there, no one can mess with it there. I remember when I was a little fella and my family would go somewhere like a mall or a fair or something and I'd have some money and my dad would say, let me hold on to your money. And I never liked that, right? Because there's something cool and big man about putting money in your pocket and pulling that out. And I didn't like it when he would say, let me hold your money. But he knew that I frequently had holes in my pockets and I would frequently lose money. And I remember more than once being at the mall or at a fair and going, oh no, did I lose it? And then remembering... Dad has it. He kept it. He kept it for me because he's more reliable than I am. It's a good thing that our spiritual inheritance is kept in heaven for us because no one can get to it, to change it, to mess it up, to to default it, to steal it. Some of you have had disputes with family over a a real inheritance. You know, someone got the will changed somehow. Somehow. The executor of the will gets greedy and keeps more for themselves than they should. Or they hide some of the, the funds from the records. I hear that that isn't that uncommon. But it's impossible with our heavenly inheritance. Nothing can mess with it. No one can mess with it. It's in heaven. It's protected there. With an earthly inheritance, you may get all you're supposed to. And then squander it. Where'd it go? How'd I go through it so fast? It's possible to lose it in investment. It's not only possible, but it's likely that you use it. Maybe you used it wisely, but you had to use it. You went through it. Eventually, Downton Abbey will have to go up for sale, (laughs) but not our heavenly inheritance. It's not only kept in heaven for us, but according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, he says we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee for the inheritance that we'll have when Jesus comes again. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Why does Peter use those words? Well here's a place where we have to think whole Bible. I think Peter is doing that when he writes these words in connection with this other word inheritance. You see inheritance in the Old Testament was used often and it was almost always used of the land, the promised land. God gave the land to Abraham and hence everyone in Abraham's lineage got this inheritance of the land. That's the Old Testament. And in that Old Testament context, that inheritance, that earthly inheritance of the land, in a sense, wasn't kept for them. In fact, it was at times taken from them. Like the exodus, right? I'm sorry, like the exile, where God removed them from the land and brought them to Babylon. Even as Peter writes his letter, the land is occupied by the Romans. They're there, but... It hasn't been kept for them. Even when they possessed the land as their own and there weren't intruders in it, the land still decayed. It was perishable. Remember Peter's words? He says it's imperishable. The land of the Old Testament was an inheritance that was perishable. It was, time and time again, defiled. God explicitly says so in Jeremiah 2. He says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage or my inheritance an abomination. Whatever glory that inheritance had, it was a glory that was fading. So Peter, I think, is contrasting that old inheritance of the land with the new inheritance. Spiritual inheritance that's ours in Christ. The Inheritance that's in Christ and it's ours as Christians is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And there is nothing like this in all the world. Everything else is perishable. Everything else is fading. Your skin is fading like mine, right? The older you get, the more gravity shows your perishableness. Your defilement, your fadingness, our stuff fades it 's perishable it 's easily broken it 's easily defiled. Kingdoms of this world are imperish- are perishable, easily defiled and frequently defiled, they fade, they come, they go. We Christians should love what is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. We should cherish. This, our inheritance, above all else. Because it's the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that's real. It's the only thing that's perfect. It's the only thing that can't be taken away. We should set our minds on things above where Christ is, not things on the earth, Colossians 3 tells us. But maybe we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. You see, the question still remains, What? actually is this inheritance we've said it's imperishable undefiled it's unfading we've said it's kept in heaven for us we haven't said what it is we know it's not the old testament land that's not what peter means here jesus in the new testament says that our inheritance is the kingdom inherit the kingdom he talks about inherit the earth he sometimes talks about He also talks about inheriting salvation. But even these, what do they mean exactly? We know that we inherit something. We inherit salvation. We inherit the kingdom. But what does it mean to inherit that? Does it simply mean that when we die, we'll inherit heaven? We'll be part owners with billions of others or trillions of others or quadzillion of others. And God too. And he's really in charge, so we kind of own it, but not really. Is that what it means? Does it mean that we'll inherit stuff when we go to heaven, like fancy crowns of gold? Does it mean simply that we've been adopted into his family? Is inheritance used in Scripture in the New Testament just to tell us and show us in a word picture that we have all rights and privileges now, that we're true sons and daughters? Is it just a way of saying that he's our father and we're his children and We've been born of him and we'll live with him forever? Yeah, in a sense, that's true, but there's more to it. There's something more to our inheritance. I think scripture tells us that what we get at the end is God Himself. Our inheritance isn't stuff, it's not heaven, it's not the earth, it's not the nations, it's not a plot of land. It's not a mansion over the hilltop. What we inherit is God himself. That's what we want. We don't know it. We don't know it so well, but that's what we want. Psalm 16 says, In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If I said to my wife that, um, on her birthday, let's say, as I put a bow on my head, I said, you know what I got gotcha? Me. She'd go, oh, okay. You forgot, huh? <laughs> nice try. You know, she might think, don't I kind of already have you? Are you going to do more massages this year? What, what does it mean? Yeah, that wouldn't be a good present to my wife. But it's different with God. God saying he gives himself to us is far different. Because in his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's our inheritance. And by the way, we actually see a hint of this in the Old Testament with the high priest Aaron Aaron was a little foreshadow of the new heaven and the new earth and God being our inheritance. In Numbers 18, the Lord says to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. Everyone else, they'll, they'll get a portion. They'll get a plot. You'll have, they'll have an inheritance. Not you, Aaron. I'm your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. I will be your portion. I will be what you need. I'll be, a, I'll be a little picture of what's to come, that I'm your everything. The book of Job gives us another foreshadow like this when it says in chapter 22 lay your gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold in your precious silver. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He is better than gold or silver? We believe now that his word is more precious to us than much fine gold. Well, the fourth and fifth thing are much shorter. They go together. The fourth thing in 1 Peter 1 about our hope, this living hope, is a hope of being perfectly protected. Perfectly protected. Not only is our inheritance kept for us, we are kept for our inheritance. Look at verse 5. It says, Christians are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith. God guards us. He births us. He gives us faith and repentance. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He'll one day come again. Jesus will come again. He'll make all things new. Until then, he'll keep us, guard us, protect us. Remember, Peter's writing this to Christians who are being persecuted. They have to note the irony there. God will protect you. And they're probably feeling like, really? It doesn't feel like he's protecting us. But he is protecting them. In the midst of persecution, he's protecting them. Even when... We face the sword. Paul can say in Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. It doesn't look like you're more than a conqueror when you're being killed for Jesus. But Jesus still wins. He's still good. He'll bring us home. We're being guarded by God's power. Not just by a promise. By God's active power. The omnipotent God works to save and to keep Our hope is in him. And notice that it says we're guarded through faith. I think that tells us, reminds us that the faith is his doing. He guards us through faith. It's his doing. He keeps us as we believe and keep on believing. It shows us both his sovereignty and also our responsibility. We're being kept by God's power through faith. And the faith well, it's not of ourselves, it's his work, it's His gift. And yet, we're told in Scripture, "Believe and keep on believing. Persevere, press on." As it says in Philippians 2, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and do of His good pleasure." Wait, do we work it out, or does he work it in? It's both. We work out what he works in. We're perfectly protected. For the fifth thing, we're perfectly protected for final salvation. That's how this section ends. The hope of final salvation in verse 5. We're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I might throw you for a loop here that salvation is talked about in a future sense. You might think that Christians are already saved, and you'd be partly right. Scripture talks about that. Christians are saved. It also says they're being saved. It also says that one day they'll be finally saved, finally redeemed, brought to Jesus, and all God's promises fulfilled and completed in us. Look down at verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. You see there this command, this invitation to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They have grace, and yet when Jesus comes again, that grace will be revealed fully, completely. And we can set our hope now, not just on what we have, but what we will have When he's revealed, when he's revealed, salvation will be fully revealed. He's our salvation, he's our inheritance, he's our joy, our glory. This hope, this salvation is ours through his birth work, we could say. It's ours because of an inheritance he gives us and keeps for us and protects for us. He keeps us by his power. He guards us for for salvation and for a final salvation. And Peter says, for a salvation ready to be revealed. Who knows? It may be soon. Jesus may come again soon. It's coming, but not yet. It's almost here, but not yet. Hope isn't unsure, but hope does wait. It waits. I think many of us today, especially in this age of ever more instant gratifications, we tend to think of everything either in terms of now or it's a crapshoot. Who knows? Like, if you don't have it now, who knows? Get it now. One in the hands, worth two in the bush. But Peter's thinking quite differently than that. He means to tell us that we Don't need to be unsure but what we have in Jesus. All of what we have in Jesus is not yet. Christians are a waiting people. Oh, they have so much already. And so much of Peter's letter here is about what we already have. And grace and peace even being multiplied to you. But there's still more to come. So Peter begins his letter, we could say... By reminding these suffering Christians with the big picture, the big picture. Sometimes Romans 8:30 is a verse that's referred to as the golden chain, because it stretches from eternity's past to eternity's future. There, Paul says, "Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified the golden chain." Well, 1 Peter 1 is kind of another golden chain, isn't it? In the first five verses, Peter moves from election to final salvation with about a half dozen things in between. Spurgeon called these verses a beautiful string of pearls. These pearls are doctrines. They should be studied. They should be thought on. We should not just believe them, but grow in our understanding of them. They're doctrines, but these are no mere doctrines. These are experiences. This is reality. That's our life. God's salvation from beginning to end. Christian, don't forget the big picture. Don't get wrapped up in the minutiae, the minute-by-minute ups and downs of this life. Tomorrow, things will go wrong. Who knows what the future holds on so many fronts? We Christians should know that we don't know. Who knows what will happen with the government other than it will let you down? It wouldn't be the first country if ours crumbled or got overtaken. Oh, I don't want that. You don't either. But it could happen. Our national debt may not recover. The economy may not recover. Your company may go belly up. God won't. God doesn't go belly up. Mother, father, forsake you. Best friend, turn against you. God doesn't. God is good. And God is good to let us now feel the fragility and weakness of this world around us. He is good to let us feel the fragility and weakness of ourselves. So that we can all the more fix our identity in him and trust him for the future. So the gospel is bigger than we thought. And it's better than we thought. And it's, it's a great antidote to the disease of being surprised by suffering, of feeling hopeless. In him we have a living hope. Born again to a living inheritance. Eternal, heavenly one. Kept for us. He'll keep us. And Jesus will come again. The big picture is enough for us to rejoice. Remember verse 6? In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now you suffer various trials. Let's pray and ask for God's help to believe that and live like that.